everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Today's episode is part of a seven-part series titled Religious Self-Destruction that examines indoctrination using models borrowed from identity psychology. I'll be explaining what indoctrination means to me and why I consider it a distinctly unique process that should be differentiated from other life experiences. This series mirrors articles found at the At Home in My Head blog, each of which contains links to sources and citations used in this podcast. A link to the table of contents for the Religious Self-Destruction article series is also included in the description, along with links to support and resources for those who come out of indoctrination. And now for Episode 2 of Religious Self-Destruction, Foreclosed Identities. A few years ago, I was doing personal research on the psychology of identity and attachment styles when I stumbled on a passage in an article online. The passage read, The patient we were discussing that long ago day belonged to a fairly strict church and believed strongly in his own sinfulness. The dominant idea about identity for him seemed to be that his essential nature was no good and that he required the ministrations of his church practice as a corrective measure so as to ensure his survival. His practical identity seemed to be mostly concerned about suppressing his natural identity, if you will, as he perceived his natural identity to be sinful. I didn't realize it at the time, but the piece was actually written in 2004 for a site called mentalhelp.net by Dr. Mark Dombeck. The article concerned his time as a psychology professor in the role of mentoring graduate students as therapists in training. One of these students was working with the patient described in the opening quote. The student therapist suspected the patient's high levels of religiosity might be contributing to his symptoms. The style of therapy was more about symptom management, however, and not psychoanalysis, and so the question went no further in the group discussions. It did, though, prompt Dr. Dombeck to consider the idea on his own time and years later to pen this article. In the piece, he ponders whether the religion was causally connected or if it might be the case that someone with the patient's symptoms might be predisposed to becoming highly religious. He considered identity and what it means to adopt a belief system. Are some value systems less healthy than others? If they are, what, if anything, should we do with that information? Do people have natures? Can they be good or bad? What about this patient who believed he was inherently flawed and required constant self-suppression and correction? Dombeck not being a philosopher but a psychologist, began to invoke psychologists who had investigated these ideas and models they had built over time to help understand and explain them. He began with Carl Rogers from the 1950s and 60s. Rogers suspected human beings were basically good, and left to their own devices they would tend toward behaviors that were generally healthy for them. He further suspected that pressure to adopt unhealthy attitudes and behaviors could be the cause of negative mental health issues. Rogers thought of people as organisms and adopted an idea that there's merit in allowing an organism a lot of latitude with regard to self-direction because values are diverse and unique. One organism might be gay, another straight, another trans, another cis, another likes vanilla over chocolate, and the next prefers strawberry. In essence, Rogers thought it was a good idea to encourage people to identify their bliss and pursue it as much as they pragmatically could. Next up, came psychologist Eric Erickson, a contemporary of Rogers, who was also interested in identity and the sense of self. Erickson believed what we think of as identity 
wasn't fully formed at birth, but rather evolved and developed throughout life. While inherent, it was still something that required discovery. He thought of identity as growing out of important life decisions each of us generally confront, such as work and relationships. In any situation, we would either confront the crossroad and learn something about ourselves, or shy away from the work of examination and consideration, and neither learn nor grow. People would either confront life in a process of ongoing discovery and deeper self-knowledge, or they would stagnate, resulting in problems. Later models allowed for more flexibility in moving around between developmental stages, but overall it wasn't a bad basic model of how a progression of identity development could look. Then came James Marsha, also in the 1960s. Marsha made some major adjustments to the model. His initial significant contribution was to posit that the amount of effort a person put into their own evolution was indispensable. He focused on two key metrics, how committed a person is to the core value and how much effort or exploration had been done to come to that value. Just a note that in the literature, exploration is sometimes referred to as crisis, which is not considered negative. It simply means you were presented with a situation that called for exploration and decisions. Marsha expressed that adopting values without effort meant an identity had not actually been achieved. It was still clearly an identity, the person was committed to values, but no work had been done to achieve it. In 1967, Marsha published a paper titled Ego Identity Status, Relationship to Change in Self-Esteem, General Maladjustment and Authoritarianism, in the Journal of Personality, in which he expressed the idea as follows. The variable of commitment, however, cannot be the sole criterion for ego identity. The individual about to become a Methodist Republican farmer like his Methodist Republican farmer father, with little or no thought to the matter, certainly cannot be said to have achieved an identity in spite of his commitment. And that's the end of the quote. Identity models can become complicated when you start to broadly apply them. Issues like social identities and intersectionality raise interesting questions and can be represented in different ways. But the basic model Marsha developed simply ranked commitment and exploration. It included four identity types, diffusion, moratorium, foreclosed, and achieved. These labels were associated with how committed a person was to their beliefs and how much exploration they devoted to developing them. Diffusion was associated with both low commitment and low exploration. Moratorium was associated with low commitment and high exploration. Foreclosed was associated with high commitment but low exploration. And finally, achieved was associated with both high commitment and high exploration. So the model lists those four basic types of identities. Any person can have elements of more than one. But the general idea is that the foreclosed identity is one where an individual has a lot of commitment to their values but they have not done much exploration to reach them. Achieved identity, on the other hand, is one where the individual has reached a high degree of commitment to their values after engaging in a similarly high degree of exploration. The others are not as relevant to my goals, but they include diffusion and moratorium. In diffusion, the individual is not highly committed to their values and also not motivated to explore them. In moratorium, the individual works hard to explore their values but is not committed to anything based on that exploration. In fact, everyone who has an achieved identity has spent a good deal of time in the moratorium quadrant before they got there, exploring before committing. As someone who was indoctrinated, this simple model was huge. I was finally able to relate my experience to external reality in a way I never had before. 
I immediately recognized my former religious self. I had been foreclosed. Most of my values now sit in the other three areas. Values I care about are either achieved or being sorted in moratorium. Values I'm not concerned about are probably sitting in the diffusion backlog until a time when they become relevant. I am sure I still harbor some foreclosed values, because every few years I tend to discover one or more lurking in some dark cobweb corner of my mind waiting to be examined and corrected if needed. I realized, however, that if someone would have come to me in my former incarnation as a conservative Christian, I would have insisted I had explored, I had dedicated ridiculous amounts of time and energy to understanding my religious values. I was constantly evaluating them, studying feverishly, praying frequently, focused on my religion daily. And yet after my deconversion and unpacking my former religious beliefs, I felt I'd been incredibly irresponsible in neglecting my exploration. I envisioned digging in a small sandbox, drilling down as deeply as I could, but never realizing there were walls around me restricting where I could explore. After leaving religion, it was like stepping out of that box and realizing there was an endless horizon in every direction to explore. How had this been accomplished? How had I been convinced I'd engaged in years of in-depth exploration when I'd been running in place the whole time? One interesting study, Religious Doubt and Identity Formation, Salient Predictors of Adolescent Religious Doubt, in the Journal of Psychology and Theology, December 2008, found that religious youth who had achieved identities had higher levels of doubt and were more likely to look at both belief-confirming and belief-challenging sources during times of doubt. Those with foreclosed identities had lower levels of doubt and were more likely to look at only belief-confirming sources during those same times. The article notes this fits a broader profile of foreclosed as, quote, rigid and close-minded, unquote, as well as exhibiting avoidance of ambiguity and cognitive dissonance. It was interesting to me that those who explored their beliefs more thoroughly were less committed to them. Some have posited this may be because exploration allows us to recognize how perspectives can change with new information. I was finally on the road to asking the right questions. It was exciting to realize I might finally find answers that had eluded me for decades. Answers I thought I'd die without. That's it for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to check out the information and support links in the description. As always, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.